A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary care plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi folks, Charlie Bazina here. Join me for my Hunting for Killer show on March 2 at Roomba's Function Centre in Gisborne, just 40 minutes north of Melbourne. I'll be taking you on a unique and fascinating journey, outlining my investigations from discovery of a body to some surprising conclusions. This presentation is not to be missed. Tickets available at trybooking.com and the ticket price includes a pasta meal and a complimentary glass of wine. Limited seats are available. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening and being part of my podcast. I hope 2024 is kind to you. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a mixture of interesting and thought-provoking guests discussing the human side and impact of crime on all those involved, including the investigators. And I'd love for you to give me a review if you can. They're just a great help to me. I give my guests the opportunity to tell their story in their own words and how they remember an incident. It may not be how others remember it, which I ask you to please keep in mind. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, contact Lifeline or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Thank you. The concept of private prisons just fundamentally doesn't work because ultimately you've got a system that relies on a steady flow of inmates coming into the prison. The US prison system is definitely a prison system we don't want to try and copy, I can tell you that. Hope you've had a good week. Uh, Today's part two of my interview with Giles, a prison officer with Corrections Victoria for 12 years, six of which were spent in the operations team uh, for Corrections Victoria Intelligence Unit. His role was to investigate prison offences, drug trafficking into prisons, disrupt prison gang activity, investigate staff misconduct and to provide intelligence information to law enforcement agencies. His inside knowledge of many prisoners that we've all heard about through the media is fascinating with his role as case manager requiring him to talk and interact with them and support them in many ways. He gives us an insight into their personalities and what it was like dealing with some of Australia's most dangerous criminals. So let's hear part two, shall we? And have a great week. Thank you. Tell us about the differences that you um, have noted between a private enterprise running a prison and a, a government body. Yep. Um, can you share with us some thoughts and ideas on that? 
Well, Stone Victoria, we have the highest ratio of um, prisoners managed in the private sector. So to give you a bit of insight in how the private prisons work, um, the state government will determine when they build a new prison whether it's going to be um, state-run or whether it'll be privately run, and they put out a tender. And then that tender is a competitive process between these private organisations. It's typically dominated by three organisations, being GEO, G4S and uh, Serco. And then once they successfully put out the tender, um, that uh, company will typically have a contract for 25 years. Um, It's based on bed number, I believe. So typically when you look at private prisons, they're significantly larger than than public prisons. So Barwon's got about 400 beds, whereas uh, a place like Ravenhall has 1,600 beds. So you're looking at facilities that are sometimes three to four times the size of uh, the government ones. So I think when you have that type of environment, the complexities starts to become quite exacerbated with, with that many inmates. Um, and effectively how they, they run the prison, they run the prison uh, at a loss to gain more profits. So they get a grant. The only way that the Corrections Victoria can regulate these private bodies is they create a set of service delivery outcomes. We call them SDOs that surround things like um, violence, like assault levels, dr- positive drug tests, deaths in custody, if they breach one of those SDOs, we withhold some money. Um, so that's the only incentive they have to uh, be compliant. Um, but any way that they can cut cost means that they can further their profits. So even something trivial like a loaf of bread, if they can get a loaf of bread at 50 cents cheaper than another loaf of bread, when you think about 1,600 inmates, and you think about the thousands and thousands of loaves that are purchased every week over the course of a year, you're talking about thousands of dollars in savings. So unfortunately what you see is, uh, you know, a a lot of instances where they just remove um, services to inmates because of the incentive to get a a greater um, profit. And I think that the concept of private prisons just fundamentally doesn't work because ultimately you've got, you know, a a system that relies on a a steady flow of inmates coming into the prison. If you created a a miracle program that transformed prisoners' lives in a heartbeat, they would be without inmates. They wouldn't have that flow coming in and they would be without work. So they rely on recidivism and they rely on – you know, people committing offences. So that's that's my you know, pet hate with private prisons is that uh, they're, they're focused on generating profit and um, they're unfortunately a, a huge flow-on effect because of, of that mentality. In fact, they're, from what you're saying, they're encouraging recidivism. Yeah, I, I would say yeah. like... There, there is no – if they, as I said, if they created an environment where recidivism reduced, they've, they've done themselves out of some money. I mean, all of these big companies, G4S, GEO, every time there's a new prison that's built, that's announced it's going to be 
you know, uh, a private prison. They're very keen to put up a tender for it. They're keen to expand. Um, and these these organisations are run by big American and and British um, organisations. And it's it's something we've seen in the US as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're following suit. And the US prison system is definitely a prison system we don't want to try and copy, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. No. Gee, it's good food for thought. You know, you, it's a shame. It all comes down to money and not the person. Yeah. Which, you know, as in the prisoner, they they don't care about the prisoner. They want the prisoner to come back because it's all about money. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Um, have you ever worked in a female prison, in a women's prison? Uh, only only for searches. So I haven't done a heck of a lot at the women's, but um, probably a dozen or so times I've gone in there to do some um, targeted searches, which has always been, you know, a fascinating uh, a time. I've always went away with a smile on my face. The, the women are very different than the men um, and they're – they're very curious about who these people are. Like, so people like myself who might come in for a day or two, they're always very curious, asking lots of questions, whereas the men, <laughs> they, they, just, they don't really care. Like um, you, you could walk from one end of the prison to the other without their, them not acknowledging your existence. But the women, as soon as you walk through the door, they're asking you who you are, what are you doing, um, mm. and the, the dynamics are, are very interesting and they just – they have a very long memory. Um, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time. I uh, this. I was there for a, a meeting of all things, and I was standing at an officer's post, and the officer's post controlled the doors. And this yeah. this woman stood at the door with her hands on her hips, just giving me this greasy look. And I, I gestured to her, "I'm not opening the door. It's not my post. I'm not not the prison officer here." It's somebody else. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the, a short time later, the prison officer came back and opened the door and she's come in and she says, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a staff member coming for a meeting. She's like, why have you got such attitude? And I'm like, I beg your pardon? I said, pardon? And she's like, you've got such attitude. And I'm like, I said, this is not where I work. I can't let you in. So she stormed off, sat on the on the on the bench then another inmate came in she says who's that and she's like oh that's a prison officer with attitude and then about <laughs> two or three years later I remember doing a search in a cell and it so happens that the search I was doing was the same woman I didn't recognize her but she yeah. recognized me immediately <laughs> and she said oh you're that prison officer with attitude and I, I couldn't believe it so like the yeah, the dynamics are very interesting. And working in Intel, one of the things I've noticed, like the men seem to get some type of purpose from joining a gang, um, like they, they find that brotherhood, um, which is quite interesting because the women don't tend to form gangs. Um, and I wonder if it, they don't seem to get along well enough to form gangs. They may have that intent, but they're – there's so a lot of politics with the women. Like there, a lot of um, when a female comes inside, about sixty or seventy percent will end up in a same-sex relationship, 
And so they are going out with one another and then they break up and it becomes very political. So it's yeah. it's a whole minefield. I, I feel sorry for people that have to deal with female placement because there's so many, you know, ex-girlfriends hanging around that can't mix with one another. I don't know how they manage yeah, strategically yeah. placing them in the units. Yeah, uh, like a, a very toxic environment, I suppose, with all the uh, nuances from, you know, relationship breakups and, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, I'm just thinking with you talking, I was going to ask a question about um, the differences between a male prison and a female prison and I thought it sounded a bit naive, you know, obvious, uh, other than the obvious, um, you know, we're just made different. But yeah. it was more about the psychology yeah. Uh, around um, women prisoners to men prisoners, and you have just explained it. It's not actually such a naive question because um, it it's just a fascinating insight into human behaviour and the, just the difference between the two type of prisoners. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, women tend to be a lot more independent, so they, I find they tend to, arc up a lot more because, you know, that that person will have a particular gripe with you, but there's no one really to come in and and try and rationalise with that prisoner. Whereas in the men's, you'll have, you know, this very structured hierarchy within these gangs. And so if one one crook starts to arc up, you'll quite often have somebody that they report to within their gang that will pull them back and say, you know, just pull your head in, you're highlighting the group or you don't need to do that, it's not worth it. There's somebody there rationalising with them. But I've never seen that with the women. Um, Mm. They just, they tend to be a lot more isolated, but their their need for emotional support, and I think the reason why there's so much um, same-sex relationships in the prison, in the women's, is because they need that companion um, yeah. that they, they need yeah. that that person to play almost like a like a like a, a real family especially in the, the lower security facility at Tarangower mm. you kind of see the dynamic that they don't create a gang they try and create a family they've got their sisters they've got their mum they've got their you know their daughter type situation the other interesting thing of, as well is that there's um, uh, children in female facilities so do you know the age in which children can stay with their mother? I, I think it's maybe three, three or four years of age. So uh, at one point there was about 20 kids there. Um, so that, that creates a different dynamic as well. They're in a different area. But um, it does create a different dynamic when you have people, that, especially in that first few years of, of sometimes having their first child, uh, a lot of, of the older women will come and help out. Uh, but it it also changes the, the dynamic between staff. I remember when I was just doing a tour there, one of the, the girls was freaking out. She just had her first baby and this prison officer is effectively telling her how to, you know, breastfeed and telling her how to change nappies and effectively, you know, being that, that uh person that she's never had in her life so that the dynamic is a lot different from from the men's 
God, amazing. Um, you've had a lot to do with some prisoners which are uh, well known to uh, most of us uh, in the community through the media. I was wondering if you could, if you could maybe share uh, with with us some insights. Like the other day, you were telling us, and just to give you a little bit of a, um, a heads up. For instance, um, you told us a bit about John Sharp, about Peter Dupas, yep. uh, Julian Knight, t- uh, Tony Mockbell. Like these are names that are just um, so well known in the media as as prisoners. Can you tell us a little bit about your insights into them? Yeah, so the you know, reason why I brought this up the other day is because I've listened to your podcast for some time now and I listened to the podcast that you had um, where you talked about John Sharp and you were interviewing one of your colleagues that was involved with that particular case and um, I found it fascinating to hear, um, I suppose, what the investigation side of it because I, I have a, had a lot of involvement with John Sharp um, when he was uh, managed uh, at, at Barwon. So uh, I um, would have regular discussions with him. In fact, at one point I was his uh, case officer. So every prisoner is allocated a prison officer who will uh, look after their, I suppose, their administration stuff. So look out for their visits, um, any programs they've got to do, the case officer will make sure that they uh, they complete those programs, a uh, bit of behavioural management as well, trying to get insight into what the prisoner wants so that you can um, make the appropriate referrals and, and whatnot. So over the years, I got to speak to John Sharp quite a bit and we are talking before about prisoners who would give you some and prisoners that would not give you much and John Sharp is just one of these People, we used to call him the walking corpse because he just, he's just, he's got the sunken eyes. He's this tall, skinny, pale person. Weed. A yeah, weed. A weed. And he just kind of, he does not engage in conversation. It was, I've had more intellectual conversations with a brick wall than I have had with him. And Why doesn't that surprise me? Yeah. yeah and I just, um, it was fascinating to hear, you know, how I was fascinated when you said he uh, he took the mobile phone of the um, the victim and was making calls after the after it, and then he just hid it in a park or something. It just shows mm-hmm. you. I think it gives you insight into how much lack of intelligence this guy has, um, and that's something that I've observed. Like he is just a drip, and. Uh, yeah, I just find it I, – I really find it fascinating because um, when we often see movies and, and documentaries, you know, uh, we were talking before about the science of the lambs and, you know, movies that portray serial killers. There is that character that, it you know, they obviously are made to generate a profit. But in real life, serial killers are very boring people because they lack empathy. Um they're not interested in what you have to say. So they don't engage in conversation. They, they're very self-absorbed and they, uh, even just small things I've observed, like their personal hygiene is atrocious. I've had to, a person like Julian Knight, you know, you have to tell him 
you know, you need to clean your teeth. You need to put on some deodorant. You need to have a shower because they just they don't think about the impact that it's having on on people around them. Like prisoners will be complaining about their body odor, and you have to have a discussion. And sometimes they take these things on board, but it's interesting that they never think about about their own hygiene because it doesn't affect them. You know, it affects other people. Um, so I mean, I was just gonna—I was just gonna say something really silly then yeah. about they have no self-respect, but of course they don't. No, you know, they—they they don't. Well, but then in a way, in a way, we're saying they think of themselves only and not others. But they—I oh, just can't imagine that you wouldn't worry about your breath smelling or you—you you having um, body odor. Like to most of us. Mm. You would do anything to not offend somebody or to offend yourself, you know? Just, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. They've got an ego. They've got a, 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 a like self-importance, but, um, they, yeah, they. it's weird. They've got an ego, but it's not about their physical appearance or about the way they're perceived by other people. It's just whatever stimulates them. You know, they're they're focused on themselves only and nobody else. So I've always found that very interesting because when I first came in, I I read every true crime book and listened to every documentary on the face of the planet and uh, I was expecting more. I was expecting to have these really intellectual conversations with these people and to get nothing was just very disappointing. I always thought I could try and I just had this fascination. I thought one day I might be able to, you know, get an admission from one of these guys about one of the murders that they have, yeah. have committed. Yeah. But you, you yeah. try and just have a little conversation and it's just met mm. with like just nothing. It's just very like another one I could never talk to was Ashley Coulston. You know, I would talk to him at try and talk to him at length. Peter Dupas is the same, just absolutely nothing. And all they would do is just sit on a table and play Scrabble all day, every day. Um, and I, I just found it fascinating how all these notorious serial killers would just sit and, and they wouldn't talk. That was the other interesting thing. Sometimes you'd go and sit next to them. There would be no talking. It was just playing a game. And they do that day in, day out. I don't know how they found that interesting, but still to this day it perplexes me. But that's what happened. It's just it's a very bizarre world. Hmm. Who was on that table? Who would be playing Scrabble and not oh, usually uh, like communicating? Ju- yeah, Jupaz, Coulston, um, I've forgotten his name now, the hot chocolate rapist. Um Oh yeah, and then you had you the, yeah, yep. Um, Dania would every now and then when he wasn't in management. Uh, Dania, uh, Farkelson, the guy who drove his kids into the dam, and then um, Freeman, the guy who threw his daughter off the Westgate. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, there was a few. Oh, the the other one. He was never in this particular area, but the the other one that I used to be quite fascinated talking to, once again, you don't get much from him, was um, 
Paul Haig, a lot of people forget about him. He was, I think he's probably the most, in terms of the amount of uh, people, victims that he had, I think he's got the most um, that have, he's been convicted for. Like there's others that, of course, have never been solved. But, uh, yeah, not not much is said about him, but he he's a very absent individual and he, he's another one that I've tried to talk to over the years. And- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you and just get donuts from it's you know I wish I could say more but you just literally get nothing from them and you, you get when you when you when I say you get to know them like you you spend an eight hour shift with them and so you know when you kind of compare how much time you're spending with your family I was spending more time with these people than I would be my own family some of the inmates you get to know them really well, you know, what what their interests were, you got to know their routine, but but these guys just nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the rapport never never really came with them. You you could ask them to do something, they'd do it for you. There wasn't uh misbehaviour, but in terms of actually trying to get a little bit of insight, 
um, you, you could get very little. Who who tell us about Paul Haig? What what um yeah, I must admit I know most names that you talk well, I know all the names you're talking about there, but I don't um I probably should know. Who is Paul Haig? Well Paul Haig, I believe I don't know all these crimes, I believe he killed about seven or eight people um in the late seventies and uh early eighties. Um and I'd say if you looked at all the inmates that are currently incarcerated, um, he's probably been the longest serving in Victoria. Okay. Um, so I don't I don't know who he I don't know his um, much about the victims he he killed, but um, I believe it wasn't like he was uh, you know killing young girls or anything like that, like he had a set, um, like a, an ideal victim. Uh, but I believe he killed uh, people uh, who had done wrong by him. So, like, he'd have a – I think he might have killed – it was a used car salesman or something like that. He killed mm-hmm. another one in prison. Uh, just people that put him offside – uh, people that know him quite well, I remember speaking to some other prison officers. We talked about that other inmate who had those eyes that he just kind of glaze over and then change. And uh, Haig is, is one of those individuals that you've got to be very mindful of what you say about him um, because certain things just trigger him and he'll it, he stews on it and then he he will act on his um, yes. I suppose his intentions. I suppose you've got to be extremely hyper vigilant around a lot of prisoners, but um, particularly someone like him. Hey, what what can you tell us about um, your involvement with Paul Denyer? Paul Denyer. So mainly had involvement in Paul Denyer when he was um, in management units. Um, so he, he's quite interesting because during his term of incarceration he started to identify as a female um, and he uh, he actually applied to the state government to get uh, uh, like surgery but that was denied um, and then I believe do you, do you think do you think a prisoner should be able to um, have let's say reconstructive surgery that's a well, That's it's a deep question. Yeah, it's, it's, but I mean, it's, it's the it's, first thing I thought of. <laughs> it's a challenging question because um, at the end of the day, like you're getting, I, th- I think you've got to look at the situation and there was a long period of time where he was incarcerated where he didn't identify as a female and he showed no intention of becoming a female and then all of a sudden he decided he would become a female and I believe – um, having spoken to some prison officers in recent months, that he's now back to identifying as a as a man. So I I don't know whether his um, intent to transition was genuine. Um, I think mm-hmm. it may have mm-hmm. been more of a strategy to get some things that he wanted or to be um, dealt with in a certain way. Um, I think. Especially with Denya, I think he quite likes his profile and um, I think him transitioning and getting some headlines 
it stimulated him and it's it's a, a way of getting attention i think and uh he likes that attention so mm. um that's that's my personal opinion on it and mm. i mean you mm. raise a a very interesting question about um people that are transgender coming into the system i mean that in itself you could have a, a podcast about because it's it's very difficult to make that assessment. You've got instances where you have people that are men that identify as female that have offended against young females and they're requesting to go to the DPFC facility. Oh, um, and they I haven't what, got they oh. haven't got um, their surgery, so they're still you know got um, functioning genitalia. So we have had instances where men incarcerated in the female facility um, have uh, there was one instance where the women actually petitioned to get that person removed because of of their criminal history offending against young women so uh, it has happened where you get transgender people that come in and even though they've got functioning body parts they'll go to the women's um, typically when it's the other way around, uh, I don't think I've ever had an instance where you have women that have transitioned to men and they prefer to be incarcerated in the male system. They typically elect to get incarcerated at the Dame Phyllis Centre just because they're a little bit vulnerable. Um, mm. But it, it does create a complexity. But you do have to ask the question, are they transitioning for a genuine reason when they're in prison, especially mm. when there's been no prior inclination of it for 10, 15 years, like some of the instances we've seen in Corrections Victoria. So uh, I think definitely for, for Denya it was a it was a, a an attention seeking thing. Mm. But then, uh, and you're right, we could have a whole podcast about this because then you've got somebody, I hate to put Danny Laidley in the same uh, uh, conversation as Paul Denyer, but Danny Laidley, uh, she kept her, um, um, I don't know, female, I don't know what you call it, but she kept that secret for years, you know, so to try and determine who is genuine and who isn't and, like, that is a complexity in a prison. You're right, I hadn't thought of that, about mm. putting a, 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 a female that um, is identifying, uh, no, a man identifying as a female and putting um, him or her, they, in a prison with other women Oh gee, oh, I can't imagine trying to manage that. How you would manage it? Yeah, it's very difficult, and it's it's a bit of a, a moral dilemma that you've you know we've oh, got very much so. Good. So, oh. and, and especially when you have especially predatory sex offenders that see an opportunity, maybe to you know, if I say I transition and I can get transferred to a female prison, are you mm. facilitating and aiding? that by doing so um mm. so it's mm. it, I, one of those things i don't think there's a right or wrong way i think it's about getting to know inmates uh, and that's where you can rely on intelligence and and 
the information we've collected on people for a long period of time to make those hard decisions uh, because we we see a pattern of behaviour or we've got some documented, um, you know, uh, information that may indicate either way. Do you think that, and this is a question I've just thought of, do you think that it will there will come a time when we have a prison for transgender like LGBTQIA plus? Like do you think it's it's going to get to that point? Look, I think I think it's difficult to to do that because I think ultimately I think when you look at corrections, I, I think they don't want to highlight people um and, and categorise people in that way and, and just effectively create a, a facility for that. You know, generally speaking, one of the things that surprised me about working in a prison is that um, inmates are quite open to people who are gay or bisexual or there's a – in terms of okay. – um, in terms of, of staff, I'd say there's a, quite a few staff member that uh, – openly um, gay that work in the prison environment and they don't seem to have any uh, mm. problems with the inmates um, and there are openly gay inmates in the system that don't seem mm. to have any problems. Um, mm. So I think, you know, we've come a, a long way and I don't think there's really a need to start separating people because of the way that they identify or their sexuality mm. yeah. or anything. But yeah. I think when it comes to transgender people, I think the main thing you need to get insight into is their their agenda and their reasoning yeah. behind it and, um, you know, why why now, you know, rather than uh, before or, or whatever that may be. And, look, generally speaking, what I found is that quite a few people that transition that's like some that transition to female that stay in adult male facilities, they're, they're quite okay with that. In fact, they choose to stay in those facilities because that's where they, they feel comfortable. Um, it might be a, more of a familiar environment to them, especially if they've come into the system a few times. You know, you they probably would be uh, put into protection. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't think it's as, I think one of the things that has surprised me is how, Prisoners are pretty open to to diversity. Um, Maybe how accepting they yeah. are, as opposed to uh, in the outside world. Like, yeah. Oh, I think a few of them, a few of these guys are outcasts. Like they, you know, they've been rejected by their family, or they've they've had the hard upbringing. So I think they know what it feels like to be mm. persecuted a bit. We've got a lot of. Um, you know, minority groups that are heavily represented in prison. So we've got a very large Vietnamese population in prison, very large um, African population in prison. So, you know, a lot of these minority groups have experienced, um, you know, uh, untoward behaviour in the community. So there, yeah. there's a lot more acceptance in prison, um, I mm-hmm. think. Typically... Mm-hmm. When we talk about gangs again, I think typically people tend to associate with people uh, of their own race. So when I say they're they're accepting, um, I think they find 
that friendship and that uh, their alliances with people of of their own ethnicity. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a lot more accepting than I mm. thought when I first came in. Mm. Uh, I hate to bring this to a close, but um, I, I think uh, we have uh, a lot more information to have another. Um, interview with you. You've just got such oh, a fascinating insight. But can we just touch on before we do bring today to a close? Yep. Can we just t- um, touch on your experiences with um, P- uh, Tony Mockbell yep. and Peter Dupas? And I just thought you told me a story the other day about Peter Dupas and a, a story about some secateurs. <laughs> Yeah, the um, I was wondering so if you might I, share that with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I used to um, read a lot uh, and and watch a lot of documentaries, and I read Andrew Fraser's book. Um, I think it was called Something Soup, and uh, he was one of the uh, prisoners that was housed with um, Dupas uh, at Port Phillip, and he got a. Uh, uh, an admission from him in relation to, I think it was to, for the Hell Vargas murder. Yes, and, I believe so. Mm. Um, and he was quite instrumental in in being a witness for that and uh, Dupas was subsequently um, found guilty of that offence. And uh, I um, read that he said he always thought, you know, Dupas was a bit weird because he'd, he, he was a garden billet and he'd collect these mouses and uh, he'd use the secretaires and he'd chop them up and he'd get a thrill from seeing these mice struggle and then die. And, uh, yeah, he would he would do this quite regularly. And so when I first started in the unit, um, and the first thing someone comes up, it was Peter Dupas. And initially I was like, this is the first time I've ever met him. I'm like, oh, this is... Dupas, and all of a sudden he says, oh, can I have some secretaires? And I nearly fell over. I looked at the staff and I'm like, you know what he does with the secretaires? And they're like, well, no, like what does he do with the secretaires? And I'm like, he chops up like mouses and things in the yard and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, where did you read that? I'm like, oh, in this book. So I said, do I give it to him? And then they're like, yeah, just give him the secretaires. He's the garden billet. So off he goes, and you see him out in the yard. I never saw him chopping up mouses, but I'd spoken oh, to other mm. other inmates oh. who confirmed, like, if he sees a small animal, he would just, yeah, torture it, um, oh. chop its tail off or chop it up, and he just, yeah, gets a thrill by seeing something squirm and, and die. Um, so that I found that. It was a bit of a shock when he asked me for secretaries the first time. So, but then I got used to it. What do you mean the first time? Did he ask for them a lot? Did he? Oh yeah, because he was the garden billet. He he would get them most days. So, um, doing some pruning around the place and pest control, apparently. Really. (laughs) So yeah, he. Oh, I can hardly, and I apologise to the listeners. <laughs> it's a bit graphic, but but just the fact that he's just given them and like to put him in gardening where, as you say, there's pests, a lot of pest yeah. control and that. I mean, 
you know, he'd think, oh, I'm sorry, but he'd think that was Christmas. And just tell us about, um, lastly, t- uh, your dealings with Tony Mockbell or your knowledge of him. Uh, I've, I've dealt with him a lot, like, um, in various different areas. Like, I think one of the things is that because he's such a personality, you know, he's, um, you know, a lot of people look up to him and uh, I suppose uh, he's got a quite an established network within the criminal world. Um, so I, I've always found it interesting talking to him because I've taken an interest in some of the underworld um, goings-on over the years and, you know, you could ask him really any question and he'd tell you, you know, who was who and what was happening. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so he was quite quite open about Yeah, very, who- very open. And okay. I never yep. forget like one night in Banksia, like he'd been he'd been separated from the main compound and uh, as I said, they talk in the underneath their cells at night and I was positioned, I was on the stairs and I was positioned where they couldn't see me and, uh, you know, a lot of the inmates, the younger inmates were asking him about various, um, you know, people in the underworld and what their involvement was and 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 he would just tell them everything. And I, I'd sit there, I sat there for a couple of hours listening to all of his, his stories and I think he gets off on on the fact that he's got a bit of profile and, um, you know, a lot of his exploits have been documented in various books and movies and whatnot. Mm. And um, I think unfortunately over the years, because of his profile, management are always a bit cautious dealing with him because they don't want negative publicity because um, if, if you know, he he's got the contacts to, you know, get out there and say, oh, this has happened and I think ultimately when it comes to yeah. government, it's about preserving your image. And so uh, I think because of that, he's got a little bit of control when it comes to dealing with staff and typically he's got a bit of control over some of the younger guys as well. Um, but, you know, it's also uh, cost him as well. He was quite badly assaulted a few years ago um, because I think he's um, – yeah, he got a bit too big for his boots and so I think a few other younger lads um, wanted to set the story straight and he was he was attacked. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things you kind of uh, if you're playing by the, you know, live by the sword, you die by the sword type thing. So, uh, yeah, he, he's an interesting character um, and, you know, he's surprisingly easy to get on with. You know, you can have a good, good joke with him and have a discussion with with him, like you or I will have a discussion. Um, and you kind of realise how, I suppose, how much control some of these underworld figures had. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of of incomes from from drugs and other you know, gambling exploits that they had, and how much control they had over. Things like professional sport. I'm a big fan of boxing, and you know he was telling us about uh, you know the Lester Ellis and Barry Michael fight, and you know how Alfonso Gangitano was behind uh, Lester Ellis, and there was this a lot of funding that was that pretty much that fight was funded by 
Gangitano and I find that fascinating because mm. it it's part of history and, you know, here mm. he's telling how the underworld had influence on that, so... Yeah, it's um, it's frightening stuff, really frightening. Uh, and you know, he he is where he deserves to be. Um, look, Giles, I've got to say um, thank uh, thank you and and thank your family, please. <laughs> again, hounding and nagging you to contact me. It's um, a, oh, just a fascinating insight that the public rarely get. Um, I believe you applied for Victoria Police and prisons at the same time and I think that Victoria Police missed out big time in you being offered a job at prisons prior to policing. But but prisoners uh, prisons need people like you. Uh, it's obvious that you care uh, and it doesn't go unnoticed that you um, have often referred to prisoners as clients which just shows the respect that you have for humanity, even though you have seen it at its worst. You possess so many qualities that a good investigator needs. You know, you're respectful, you you do genuinely care. Um, you listen, you empathise to a point and you're able to put aside the terrible atrocities that someone has done to another to treat them fairly. Not a lot of people can do that. Um I wish you luck in the future and thanks for sharing your experiences with us. Uh, I know that we will mean we will all uh, leave today, me included, so much more educated and maybe a little more understanding of why we've got the problems we've got in prisons. So um, thank you for your time and, as I say, please thank your family. <laughs> I will do. Thanks for the kind words and it's been great. It has, Giles. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you later. See ya. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression. I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 